The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. I feel as though there are moments, Holly, where we talk to people and it's just a candid conversation. Other times there's conversations where they're fun, but you learn things. I think this is a learning type of conversation today. I think so, because as I was saying before we got into our conversation, seeing the press release about this book coming out by Caroline Sumlin, and it's talking about race, and that's always a conversation for me that I I find awkward because I'm still I'm still trying to figure out who I am and where I came from. And I think that over the six and a half years that we've been doing this, we've really had an opportunity to grow and to learn. And there's still a lot more that we can grow on and there's still a lot more that we can learn. So I'm excited for today. Without uh, further ado, author, speaker, and her favorite thing ever is getting uh, a grease stain and then treating it with grease stain remover (laughs) and then it not coming out. (laughs) Caroline, that's the reason why I actually have... Eating, I have eating clothes, so then that way I don't get grease on my clothes. Where did you oh, know that? First of all, I just, what is it, threaded or tweet? What, I don't even know where I put that, on threader, on threader, what threads or Twitter or whatever. Oh. I put it somewhere, but that just happened like yesterday. <laughs> Hashtag following. Have- <laughs> That I am, I am dying. <laughs> I missed that. Now I feel guilty. I gotta. I'm sorry. I'm going to my phone right now. I'm gonna. I don't even know how to use threads. Let's do this. Still don't I'm even sure know we can hence the sarcasm. It's not my favorite thing. Yes, <laughs> and I haven't learned my lesson. And I don't put on eating shirts. I own way too many white shirts, and I always think that I will successfully. This will be the time that I won't spill or get a grease stain, and it never. It never fails. It's, it's why I pretty much buy $3 shirts because I know I'm going to go through them. <laughs> yeah. It's like me eating a taco and saying, oh, the taco's not going to fall apart this time. <laughs> right? <laughs> Anyways, we digress. Uh, Caroline, we'd like to ask this skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. And that is, who are you and where did you come from? Oh, that's it. You know, we were talking earlier uh, before we hit record about, you know, the whole where did where did you come from question. And that's a hard one for me as well, because I'm adopted and I, I struggle with with answering that question and really knowing, like, is this really where I came from or or do both parts of where I came from really count? Um, but I'm, I'm Caroline, um, Caroline J. The J stands for Jeanette. If anyone really wanted to know, it's my my mom's name. So it kind, it's kind of cool. Um, Sumlin. And uh, I come from a lot of different things. Right now I have a gnat in front of me, so that's fun. Um, I come from a lot of different places. Um, I was raised in the Twin Cities, and that is home. That is that is my, my number one love <laughs> as far as um, places are concerned. So I, I, I probably more so identify with someone who comes from Minnesota, Minnesotan, if you will. Um, but I'm, I'm adopted and I was born in New York and I was born to, um, two intellectually disabled, uh, adults who one was, um, classified as a Hispanic woman and one was classified as a black man. Um, I have never quite identified myself as an Afro Latina or someone who is Hispanic. I've always identified myself as black. I was raised by two black, um, parents. And, uh, so that's really all that I know of me. Um, but that is, that is, I guess, you know, part of me. I don't really know much about, 
um, my, my background as far as, you know, that the biological side of me, but I always find it difficult. Like, you know, wh- wh- where do I come from besides being raised in Minnesota? You know what I'm saying? Because I don't identify with coming from New York and I don't, mm. I know where my biological family is from, from, so to speak. And if I did know what I really identify with that, because I'm not from them, so to speak, but at the same time, I don't really come from my parents either. I don't come from their, their roots in New Orleans and their roots in Ohio and, and everything else. So I'm just kind of floating in the middle somewhere. Um, and, and I'm just, I'm just here. I'm just, I'm kind of a, a whole, a whole lot of things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I We're, love that so much. Cause I always yeah. say it took a great many nations to make me because mm. after George Floyd, I realized, and it might sound odd because I'm definitely, you know, midlife, but that was only what, three years ago now? Um, maybe two time three, just cut yeah, three, three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, oh, people see me as black or sometimes because I have straight hair, um, you know, Latina, but no one sees me as to how I was raised. And I was raised in Edmonton, Alberta and a very white upbringing. So, I mean, I got Irish, I've got um, Mohawk, I have English, I have so many different cultures, Trinidadian, maybe Venezuelan. So it's it's kind of interesting how we see ourselves is different from how other people see ourselves. But mm, most importantly, yeah. God sees us completely different in amongst yeah. all of that. Mm. So, so, good. so I feel you on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, who am I? <laughs> Where did I come from? Yeah, it's so hard to answer that question, but I mean, I just all I can do is really answer honestly and and say, you know, these are these are all parts of me, but as, you know, as far as like yeah, they're just, they're just all, they're all parts of me. They're all parts of me. And I I don't live in the Twin Cities anymore. I I reside outside of Washington DC. Um so I don't know if that's part of the the the, the question there. Where are you from? Whatever you make where it. Are you located? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But you know, there's that part too. But I mean, it's it's so much more than just location and everything else. There's so much there's so much more to it. But um, I think a lot of us can can identify in our own special ways, like the difficulties sometimes behind behind that question for whatever whatever reasons sure. come up. Yeah. And that's I think that's part of the reason why we asked the question because everybody's answer is very different. And some yeah. people have a really, you know, cut straight, I was born here, this is where I've been and and you it, it's not as it's not as A to B. Um you were how old when you were adopted? So I was brought to live in uh the Twin Cities, uh not too far from my third birthday. Um oh. I was legally adopted when I was six. So I, I did spend the first two and a half, two and three quarters of my life living in New York and in, in, in a uh, somewhat of a foster care situation, a neglectful, not the greatest foster care situation um, there from, from what I from what I've been told and, and just what, right. what details I have. So growing up in, in Minnesota, I mean, you're just as you're almost as Canadian as we are. Yes, <laughs> I know. Yes, I feel like it's family we're having a conversation yeah, right? here with. Oh, oh, I can bring the Minnesotan out. Oh, yeah. Yes. Good, hey, don't <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, what was life like then growing up in in the booming, uh, warm, super hot place of Minnesota? <laughs> There was never any snow. <laughs> right? So hot there. Yeah, right? Florida, what? <laughs> um, I love the Twin Cities. I always have. I think that it's one of the most underrated cities in the United States, um, yeah. underrated metropolitan areas. It's um, it's beautiful. There's just a lot of – it's a great infrastructure, a lot of great companies there. There's a lot, everyone's uh, – 
really nice. <laughs> I mean, the Minnesota nice thing is actually true. Uh, there's there's negatives to it as well, and doesn't mean that the country or the country, the state is void of its of its um, issues, especially re- um, regarding race and things of that nature. But I still really enjoyed my time there. I mean, it, it is a a predominantly white area. It's way more diverse now than it was when I was a child, and it was diverse when I was a child, but it's more diverse now. But it is still a pr- more predominantly white area than say. Atlanta, um, or Chicago. So, you know, you do have, um, there, there's definitely struggles there. You know, I, I was just home actually last week working on a project, um, with the historical society there. And I brought my, I brought my kids with me and we would, you know, go out to eat at different restaurants and in various suburban areas. And, you know, everyone is white. Everyone. There's just very, like you, you literally, are lucky to find a black person, um, in, in suburban twin cities, more so in the cities. It's, it's a lot different. Um, so just reminding myself, cause I, I live somewhere now where that you'll more than likely anytime you step in somewhere, you're going to find at least two to three black folks whenever you step inside somewhere where I live now. So it's, I was reminded like, Oh yeah, this is such a white area. And that really did impact a lot of me growing up too. So much, and I, I share about that a lot in my book, just what it was like to be the only black girl in my classes, the only black girl, um, in, in my activities that I was doing and, and what, what that was like and what I faced from, from different people, whether that be, um, white people or fellow black people when I was, you know, for example, doing playing tennis or whatever that may have looked like. Um, but there's still a, ri- a very rich black history in, in the Twin Cities that I love. I attended the oldest black church in all of Minnesota. Um, I was involved in a lot of organizations, um, for black people, um, throughout my life. And I was able to get a very rich experience there. And just overall, I've just always, I've always loved it. I mean, the snow, I love it. I love snow. I loved sledding at recess every day. (laughs) What? There was this big hill behind our school. And so it was just the norm. 15 degrees outside. Who cares? You're going to wrap up. You're going to put your scarf all the way around your face. So only your eyes are visible. And you're going to go sledding during recess. And my kids can't say that they have that same experience. And I hate that for them. So yeah. I think there's a lot of great things about living in, in Minnesota and, and caribou coffee as well. Shout out. Shout out to the Twin Cities. There you go. Do you work for their uh, tourism? Because <laughs> maybe you should on the side. <laughs> no, but for real, I really should. I would really give Minnesota a very, a very good re- uh, representation if I did. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. And it's just interesting how our upbringing where we are can shape how we see ourselves and and for you do you like what what part of growing up in minnesota shaped who you are today Hmm, a lot of it so in minnesota like i mentioned i was you know part of a, a very small percentage of the black population specifically like i said in suburban minnesota and so everything i saw around me was white whiteness white 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 and Mind you, even if you don't live in a predominantly white area, you're still going to see that in the media. You're still going to see that mm. represented, um, you know, in, in magazines and stores, you know, so yeah. you might live in a, a more black environment or a more um, um, diverse environment. But you can still walk into any Target or any Walmart and still look at the cover of all the magazines and still see predominantly white folks, especially in the 80s and 90s and things like that, right? So, you know, mind you, this is the 90s, but at the same time, you're seeing that in the media. But if you live in a a predominantly white area, you're seeing that all around you. So all of my teachers were white. All of the students around me were white. I found it very challenging to make friends um, as a child. 
And I think that was a, a lot of reasons, especially being one of the only black children in my class, you know, different hair, different skin tone. Um, mm-hmm. I could tell even from a young age when, when, um, even, even without the vocabulary to articulate it, that I was definitely seen differently, um, than, than, um, from, from the other children in, in my class. And I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was off. I, I immediately, um, internalized this feeling of inferiority for being black, um, and feeling like that wasn't as pretty, that wasn't as smart in order to, to present myself as, as better or as intelligent or as successful. I needed to essentially assimilate into this, into this, um, you know, this, this version of success that our society, that, that our society, up, up, um, excuse me, that our society upholds. And, and, and that is pretty much equivalent to, um, whiteness and, in a, in a particular presentation of whiteness to be more specific. So I was internalizing that from a really young age because everything I saw around me was, was white. And I, I immediately knew that, you know, I, I was, I, I was seen as less than it wasn't just that I, my skin was different. It was that be, being different made me, made me negative in, in, in many different ways. Um, so that, that was, that was, that was really difficult to, to kind of deal with. Um, when I went to college, I chose to go to a historically black college in Washington, DC, and that changed a lot for me. I was the first time I was really able to see, my blackness is something that was beautiful and strong and represented by multiple different ethnicities and, and, um, and that there was not one way to be black. I used to get that a lot too. I used to get the whole, you know, you talk white, you, you, you like to do white hobbies or you listen to white music. Um, you know, cause I, not only did I like Nelly, I also liked Avril Lavigne. So I got talked about a lot from the few black folks that I did know um, dispersed throughout the cities and the different activities that I did with them. A lot of times it's like, why do you sound white? Why don't you wear your hair in, in braids more often? Um, I got just a lot of negative commentary about that. And it kind of made me feel like there was one particular way to be black, to sound black, to act black. And it definitely wasn't playing te- tennis and it definitely wasn't sitting in advanced placement classes. And it definitely wasn't being on the speech team. So when I came to Howard, I finally got to see that there was no one way to be black. Black is 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 beautiful in all aspects. And I finally got to meet people that were just like me. Um, and and it really helped me to to have more of an identi- identity within myself that I really loved. But yeah, I would say that those were some of the ways that I mean, there's positive things that shaped me as far as Minnesota is concerned. But I feel like I've been talking a lot. So I'm going to stop. Um, but that those are some <laughs> Those are some of the big things that stick out to me that, you know, just growing up in, in such a white area. <laughs> yeah. I was, oh, sorry, Johnny. No, I was just going to say, I was just going to, I was going to yes and you. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. No, I just, it's, it's interesting though, because you say the, like, talk white, like as a white guy, my assumption is when we have a conversation, we're just two people talking. Like I never saw right. it as, as a white person or you, it's white speak. Um, you, I, I think of TV shows when I, what I would watch growing up, like Family Matters or Fresh Prince or the Cosby show. Those were shows that I would be watching, never even thinking that, oh, it's a white show or a black show. So mm. this is why I say when it comes to these conversations, it's, it's a learning thing for me because I'm just, Oh, I thought that that was normal. I thought that that was just, you know, things that I grew up with that you're saying, no, actually, there there is a big difference in the way you grew up to the way I grew up. I love that now because we're having these conversations and there are a lot of people, educators, activists, authors, et cetera, who are um, 
raising awareness and, and bringing education to the forefront about um, specific things within, I mean, many cultures, but I'll just say specifically the black culture that have that have been previously demonized. So, for example, African-American vernacular English is, is one of those um, certain dialect that a, cer- a certain dialect in the way that African-Americans tend to speak that has roots in our um, African ancestry, has roots in uh, what happened when we were brought over from Africa to be enslaved in America and oh. and um, and the Americas, I should say, because Central and South America as well. And um, and then, of course, all of the, the migrating and just all the things that have happened throughout the years that have formulated a, a certain dialect in the way that African-Americans tend to speak. But, you know, um, previously and, and still today, Today, really, um, there's been a negative connotation around that, that, that that's not proper. It's a prop, not a proper way to speak, quote unquote. It's not proper English. And if you speak like that, then you're talking black or that another another way to look at it would be some of the words that we say that some people might consider to be slang. But for us, it's just the way that we speak. But then it mm. but then other cultures may take that, especially white, the white dominant culture may take some of the things that we say and turn it into a slang and then it becomes cool, so to speak. But if I am someone who is not speaking in African-American vernacular English all the time. And I'm a black person, other black people, you know, that speak in African-American vernacular English all the time, especially in my childhood, not so much now, but would look at me and say, why do you talk white? Mm. So that, that, that's what I'm referring to when I, when I say that. Um, and, and, but even in my, why do I talk white? I mean, now that I've studied more things and I've, and I understand, um, more of the language rules and things like that around the dialect of African-American vernacular English. And I listen to myself speak. Um, it's not just the dialect itself, but it's also the, the tone of our voice. There's, there's still certain manners and still certain ways that we swing our words. And it's still going to be rooted in where you're from, right? So I am from Minnesota. So I am going to speak African-American vernacular English with a more Northern accent, right. but it's still there. So, um, but if I was speaking to somebody that maybe wasn't from Minnesota and they spoke like they're from Chicago, which sounds real different. And sounds way more like um, deeply African American vernacular English. They may look at me and think, "Why do you talk like that?" So that that was kind of where where a lot of that would come from. But as a child, I didn't know that. So I'm over mm-hmm. here thinking that I'm less black because I'm getting made fun of for the way that I speak and getting made fun of for the fact that I would prefer to play tennis versus play basketball or other stereotypical things that that at the time was deemed not you know not black enough so to speak and, and there's so many of us that have stories like this i mean i'm yeah. thankfully a lot of black people are now speaking up about some of the things that, that we've had to deal with especially if we were raised in like suburban areas well what point did you start to feel like i'm developing the language to express all these feelings and to have that different lens in in who you are and who god created you to be I don't think that there's a specific point. I think it's just been developing over time. I would say a lot of it started when I went to Howard University, though. Um, you know, shout out to the HBCUs. HBCUs are so vital. They're so important. Um, to, and, and, um, you know, I know that they're, they're not in Canada, but, you know, there's still something that as a, as a society as a whole, we need to shout from the rooftops as an, as an option for, for all students. Um, but especially for our black students, because that was a, place where I was able to put language to things that I had been feeling. I was able to first identify with other people that had been through similar experiences as me. I was able to see that the way that God created me to be did not make me any less black than somebody who, you know, who spoke differently than me, dressed differently than me, did, you know, and preferred different music than me. That none of that has to do with who I am as a black woman or, or my, um, 
you know, being raised in black culture or take away from or add to my blackness. God made me a black woman, period. And, and it doesn't matter what I do or who I listen to or how I sound or how I act or whatever that, that can change that. So that, that definitely began to start when I went to Howard. Um, and I think just over time with my own research and my own, um, learning more about the truth of, um, our own history, um, as black Americans, um, that that also helped to connect a lot of those dots because that history has been missing from all of our history books, all of our schools in both America and Canada. There's a lot of history as well with um, with black Canadian populations and, um, you know, from the Underground Railroad and things of that nature that are, aren't yeah. talked about. And there's a lot of connections, too, between Canada and America. Um, I even learned just recently one of the people that I'm working on with the project um, at the Minnesota Historical Society, his his family came from Minnesota, um, to Can- from Canada to Minnesota. That was how they got there. That was their roots because they had come up from the underground. They had escaped enslavement through the Underground Railroad, made it to Canada, and then after a few generations went back down to St. Paul, Minnesota and chose to, to settle there for an opportunity on the railroad because they were able to get jobs in the railroad. And that was like what brought a lot of blacksmiths. Like we don't learn these things yeah. in history. So this is an example, but when you begin to really do that, that research and learn your history, which is so powerful and so liberating, I think over time it just connects dots for you and liberates you and, and allows you to be so much more confident in, in who God made you to be. So you're gathering all this knowledge. At what point then were you like, you know what I got to become? I got to become an author because that's kind of the next thing. (laughs) If I'm smart enough, I might as well write a book and let everybody see how smart I am. (laughs) So (laughs) that's such a good question. Um, So two things. One, I've always wanted to write a book. Mm. Um, My I do. and, And it wasn't something that I, but at the same time, I didn't seek out like, okay, I'm going to make it my mission to find a way to write this book. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of wrote in a journal one day, five or six years ago, I would love to write a book, God, and just kind of like tucked that away. And I was like, you know, we'll just kind of put that out there and, and we'll just kind of continue living my life. Um, to, to also put into context, I do have a background in journalism. So I am a writer. Um, it's something that I've always been. Um, but I didn't seek journalism as my career right away. I ended up going into teaching and that was just based off of like economic decisions and things at the time of when I graduated. Cause you know, yay economy. Yeah. <laughs> yay. You know, and the need for <laughs> teachers and everything else. But I've always, I've always been a writer. I've always, I've always been a journalist. I've always been, you know, that's, that's just, you know, always, always been my, my profession. Um, but, uh, I actually just, I began writing for myself. I began educating online. I began writing blog posts. I began doing my own podcast, um, that I have since shelved since because, you know, time, I couldn't write a book and do a podcast just didn't work out. But, um, Mm -hmm. I, I began just doing, putting my research out there and putting my, my, my knowledge out there just to see if, if what I was discovering from my history and understanding the truth about white supremacy and understanding the truth about the way that it impacts us as a society to see if other people would be as liberated as I was becoming, because I felt like I was, I was learning something and I was finally connecting the dots between so many things about how I saw myself and how I always struggled myself to see, excuse me, struggled to see myself as, as a worthy human being. And it was something that 
it has been plaguing me my entire life. And I thought it was a me problem. I thought it was just because I was adopted. I thought it was just because I had some difficulties in childhood, like many of us do, you know, and it was just something that I needed to work on a very me problem. And I had been praying for probably upwards of 15 to 20 years, if I can be honest with you, and asking God, why is it that I cannot love myself? Why do I not see myself as worthy? Why do I struggle so much with hating myself from every single area, arena? I'm not just talking about one thing. I'm not talking about one struggle with self-worth. I am talking about somebody who from the my earliest memories as a child, I can remember hating myself. And I had been praying and praying and asking God for for freedom from that. And I firmly believe his prayer led me to write this book because he showed me and he had he led me to begin doing this research and he led me to begin writing about what I was finding and realizing that it was not a me problem or solely a me problem, that it was so rooted and connected in the way a society has been created and done so largely in his name. Yeah. And was created to mm. marginalize and dehumanize and oppress and separate and and create hierarchies. If for based on race and socioeconomic status and, and so many other things that have, that have caused so many of us, if not, I would argue all of us in some way, shape or form to struggle to feel that we are worthy without some sort of striving or without some sort of proving ourselves or without some sort of one of those, one of those two things, depending on where we stand in our society. So the way that I interpret it and the way that I deal with it as a black woman is going to be different than the way somebody deals with it as a white male, but it's still impacting all of us. So once I learned that, I finally found that liberation that I had been seeking. Like, oh my goodness, it has not just been a me problem. I, it, I have been told by society that I'm supposed to live a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way, and prove myself worthy of being here. And I have been fed this narrative from so many different angles. No wonder why I've been at war with myself. And no wonder why it's been so difficult to believe just because the Bible says I'm worthy that I am because I have society just flooding me with the opposite messages all the time. And a lot of times because the church also plays a role in perpetuating white supremacy historically and presently that messaging was also coming from the church so it's it's all over the place i'm reading in the bible one thing but i'm seeing and i'm being fed something else all my life from every arena from the earliest memories of the classroom all the way up to you know some of my first careers as as a college graduate so in in all of that i just felt like it needed to be shared and I just began sharing it online with no real, like, I'm doing this because I want a book deal. I wasn't doing it for that reason. I was doing it because this is liberating me. This is helping me. And I think it will help somebody else as well. And it did. That was the beautiful thing. That was when, that was when a lot of people began finding my work and saying, this is the first way I've, I, I've never seen white supremacy being talked about like this. I've never seen race being talked about like this. I never once thought about how it could be personally affecting me and the way that I see myself as a white woman, as a black woman, as a white man, as a black man, as, 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 as a Hispanic person, as in, in, in a Native American person in so many different arenas, as a gay person, as a straight person, all, all of the different, mar- intersections of our identities 
we can all say, wow, we can trace roots back to white supremacy in white supremacy culture that have that have told us in some way, shape or form, we are not enough and we need to prove ourselves worthy. So it was in that that I was that I believe God gave me the opportunity to to write a book because I wasn't trying to. I wasn't seeking. Let me write this book. Let me do this for clout. Let me do this for followers. Let me do. No, 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 no. This was all for a sheer, a sheer just burning to share everything that I was researching. And with that came the opportunity to to write this book that I'm that I'm very grateful for. You talk about white supremacy, and I I think sometimes people um, will have that image jump into their head, like I'm not a part of the KKK, I I'm not a skinhead, so clearly I'm I'm good, like I don't have anything to do with it. But like you're saying, it's so much of the fabric of our society that impacts Mm -hmm. everyone. So please do me a favor of just defining white supremacy based on what you've learned about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually write those very sentences in my book. I say a lot of people will think of white supremacy in this one very specific way because that's the way we've been taught it, right? Yes. So it's not I, – I first, I want to make sure that people understand that it's not your fault if you think of cert- certain things in a certain manner because we have been taught certain things in a certain way for specific reasons. And one of those reasons are to make sure that we uphold the, the, this hierarchy within our society that was created from our founding. Um, so we have to make sure we understand that. But white supremacy – there's there's two ways that I define it. We have systemic white supremacy and then we have the culture of white supremacy that is the byproduct of systemic white supremacy. So with systemic white supremacy, we have a society in which pretty much all, if, if not most, if not all of the wealth, power, material goods, um, political um, po- political power, etc., are are um, held within the white race. And done so on purpose. That's that's the best way I can explain. It's not. It doesn't just happen because a, a lot of us are taught that we see we see that hierarchy there. We see that the wealth and material resources and, and political power and and we see the the um the the divide between socioeconomic classes and things of that nature and and other other statistics, but we, but we're kind of taught that that's, that's a, that's a cultural issue as far as like, well, that's because white people are just better. It's because they just did better. And so that's why they, if, if, if other people of color or if other groups would just work as hard as white people do, then, then it, the the roles would be reversed. And that's not true. It was done on purpose to create this hierarchy, um, through, um, the way that our country was founded, first and foremost, and you're talking about America specifically, but first and foremost in America, our constitution was written by white land owning men for white land owning men, period, point blank. So we you start from the foundation there and, and every decision from there has been to ensure that, um, that, that power, that, that wealth, that, that, that political, um, influence is always within a, not only the white race, but within, but within specifically white males, white elite males, and that those are the decisions that are always being made. And, um, and from there, every industry, every area of our society has been built on that. Um, it's not just something that was historic within chattel slavery or, um, the days of segregation and things of that nature, but we can look at pretty much any industry. We can look at healthcare. We can look at education. 
question. We can look at our, our job markets. We can look at what people hold, what types of jobs, and we can see specifically how it has been intentionally created to ensure that there maintains a superiority of whiteness. And it is, it is done so because there is a belief that white people are the superior race. Um, historically, it was believed that God created white people to be the superior race. And that belief is what led to the colonization. It's what led to the chattel slavery. And over time, it was just, it, it morphed into just, you know, black people are, are stupid. Black people are ugly. Black people are, are lazy. Black people are not capable of, of much of anything except for being under our control and, 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 and were created for our oppression. And so everything has been, has been done to maintain that. Um, so you look at even, um, you know, with land ownership, you look at with, you know, home ownership specifically, and you look at the numbers, you look at where those neighborhoods are. All of these things were done on purpose to ensure there's a separation, to ensure that there's a hierarchy, to ensure that wealth was, um, continued throughout um, white generations more so at a faster rate, et cetera, et cetera, than, than black generations. So that's systemic white supremacy. With that, you, you, you emerge as a culture of white supremacy. Because if you think about it, how, how do we get a culture? We get culture through people in leadership who have the power to create the rules, to create the economy, to create the way in which the the, the common folk live, right? But we can see that anywhere. We can see that in our workplaces and we can see it in schools, right? If you're a teacher, you're responsible for creating the culture of your classroom. And you do so by how you set up your classroom. You do so by how do you treat, treat your, your students, right? So, so that's, it shouldn't be a surprise to us, as mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say. It shouldn't be a surprise to us that based off of, you know, 400 plus years of creating a, a, a society, a system within our society to ensure, um, a superiority of whiteness, we shouldn't be surprised that, that the way that we believe, the way that we look at ourselves, the morals, the, the values that we, that we, um, are, are kind of born into and, and believe as people that are under the umbrella of Western society, um, are, are influenced by a culture of, of white supremacy because it just is, it just stems from systemic white supremacy and it, and it essentially looks like, so for example, for looking at, we see, um, the the definition of success, so to speak, being you 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 pretty much pull up all the you know Fortune 500 folks and the CEOs and the top one percent. If you see that, if you look at that and you see all these white men, okay, mm-hmm. so culturally we're going to begin believing that that means success and that's where success is supposed to lie. And then we're going to start doing essentially, and then and they're the ones that are making decisions and telling us how we need to act, how we need to live, how we need to do whatever in order to be successful, then we're going to begin believing that and passing that down generation to generation. And, and it's just going to become a part of us. And that's, yeah. that's exactly what cultural white supremacy is. It is a part of who we are. It's our DNA. It's just as anyone else's culture that has, you know, in any other planet or any other planet, any other country, I say planet, country yeah, on Earth. Pluto. <laughs> Those guys on Mars, Mars are just, uh, and, 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 but you did answer a bit of my question because I was wondering if, if this is more just a Western society kind of thing, if, if your uh, focus was more so Western than it would be anywhere else, just because that's where we live. It is a focus on Western society because like you said, that is where we live. That is, that is where my knowledge 
is. I haven't expanded enough into global research to feel comfortable speaking from that perspective. And I also like to make sure that, you know, stories are supposed to be told by the people that are living them. It is not my job to tell the story of some of how white supremacy has infiltrated in Asia, because that is not where I'm from. So that is that is for someone else to do. However, we would be remiss if we were to act like white supremacy was only a Western issue because colonization from Europe um, was global period point blank and it does infiltrate in i would i would argue almost every corner of the globe just in different ways and we and i did i have done some research a lot of beauty standards and beauty trends globally are entrenched in whiteness and entrenched in this idea and anti-blackness, I should say, and entrenched in this idea that lighter and brighter is better, regardless of whether the, um, the cultures or the ethnicities or the societies are predominantly white or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people like to believe because there may not be a distinction between race like there is in the Western, um, specifically in, in North America and, and from what I understand, Canada, because even Central and South America don't have the race classifications the way we do in America, but there's still anti-blackness. There's still a belief that you don't want to get too dark. You don't want to get, you know, you, you want to, the, the lighter you are and the brighter you are and the, and the, the closer uh, aligned you are to whiteness. Um, is still better. So there's still, it's still there. There's still a lot of belief there that, um, um, in, in, uh, that, that there's, that there is a superiority, um, with whiteness. And, and I'm just talking specifically about, about, um, f- physical attributes, but mm. there's, I'm, I'm, I need to do more research about it. But I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, I have a friend who is from a country who was colonized by France. And one of the ways that white supremacy, um, existed in in her country was the fact that they were when they were colonized before they had their independence they were forced to to speak predominantly french they were forced to use their french names they couldn't use their african names things of that nature um so that that was just a forced white supremacy right um and and that is not the um the year the uh, english white supremacy that kind of dominates our um our countries that's that's a french white supremacy but it's still it's still there so i think it definitely presents itself in many different ways in many different cultures um but it's just not my area of expertise to say specifically yeah, yeah absolutely um sometimes i think people forget that this is and you mentioned it earlier it's also infiltrated the uh the church and it's a mm-hmm. part of um what we believe in some people will even feel offended if you bring to light that oh i i feel like this might be you know, remnant of of white supremacy or systemic racism. And suddenly if, you know, they're they're white and they're like, but we love everyone. And I I just think it's so important to to say like, yes, of course you love everyone. But also could you like look at how things are are set up to make other people fail? It's Mm -hmm. not you, it's what you were born into. So like, let's look at what we have right now. And like, what kind of things have you said to other people? Because like, looking at your book, will all be free? It's not just for people of color. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of layers to it. So, what would you say to someone who suddenly just feels offended because you're talking about race? And haven't we said sorry enough? We didn't do anything. <laughs> like, that's that's not the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's it's about looking at the fact that all of this harms all of us. All of it harms all of us. Yeah. Mm, excuse me. Um. So even though you may be sitting, depending on your, if you, if you're, if you identify as white, if you identify as, um, 
you know, maybe like a white male, you, you'd be considered to be at one of the most, most top privileged positions in society based, just based on those identities alone, based on how you're treated, based on the, the advantages that, advantages that you're given, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in being a white male. That does not mean that you are not harmed by white supremacy. Because anytime we set up a system to harm somebody else, you're indirectly harming the person that is set up to advantage, to, 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 to give an advantage to. And that can look like many different things. It can look like, um, for example, I talk a lot about hustle culture, which a lot of people can identify with this belief that you have to constantly be hustling and grinding in order to get to the top, in order to have enough money, in order to, in order to feel important, that, that, that emphasis on status and titles. Um, and you can look at it from two different lenses. You can look at it from the people that are, you know, that, that are barely able to live, you know, paycheck to paycheck and are forced in society to hustle and grind and work two, three, for jobs just to make ends meet um, and be uh, called low skilled workers because, you know, society just uses that label to, to justify the giving them a, a non livable wage and forcing them to do hard labor. And most of those people happen to be black, indigenous and people of color that that are in those those um in those types of jobs within society. But on the flip side, you also have people that are in higher earning jobs that are, that, that sit in a more privileged position in society and feel a, a strain and a stress to, in order to live up to it, in order to feel like they are deserve, deserving of it or worthy of it. And, and, um, and still feel as though the work that they're doing is not enough or they feel identified in their work. And that's the only way that they, that they are valued in society is if they're producing. Um, and it leads to mental burnout, physical burnout. It leads to strained relationships. These are just different ways that the same type of culture can impact us in different ways in which we're sitting in society. And that's, that's from a cultural standpoint. Um, but that's just, that's just one of the examples. When we able to see that it's impacting all of us. And, and, and another thing too, when we are only, when we're, when we are idolizing one type of culture and one type of presentation of people as standard, we are losing out on so much richness that exists in our world. Um, I was, I've been speaking to some, some white people specifically about the fact that they're realizing that whiteness has taken them away from really understanding what their eth ethnic backgrounds are. There's been, there, there has been when, when specifically when, um, I, I can speak for American history, when America was essentially creating race and, and wanted to make sure that the white race was one that was, um, um, higher in number than the black race. Cause there was so, at that point, there were so many enslaved Africans. Um, and at that time, you know, the, the Negro race was essentially the Negroid race was being created. There was a need to create a white race. And the, it got to the point where we, they wanted to make sure that white people at the time that weren't classified as white, but that looked white, um, <clears throat> were able to kind of join forces and become white. So we're talking about Irish people. We're talking about, um, I'm trying to think of one other ethnic group that's slipping my mind right now that wasn't considered white Italian, Italian wasn't considered white at the time. And through the need to create a dominant race, Italians and Irish and anybody else who um, presented as white, but wasn't quite classified as white because they were treated poorly. They weren't treated. They weren't British, essentially anyone that really wasn't British or wasn't, didn't descend from England. Um, they were like, all right, we're going to, we're going to make everyone white. So we have more power here. And it, and it, at the time, if you're, if you see, okay, I, I, I could not be treated. You weren't treated as poorly as 
black folks. You weren't that that was there was always a strong divide between even the lowest classes of 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 um of Europeans in America and the European immigrants and black folks. There was always a divide there, but there was also quite obviously a hierarchical divide too between wealthy landowning English men, right? If you have the opportunity to identify with those up there and no longer have to be treated like you're on the bottom, oh, you're going to take it. And so Mm -hmm. in taking it over time, generationally speaking, the, there was a loss of culture. There was a loss of, 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 um, of identity there. And so a lot of white folks now are kind of realizing like, you know what? Yeah, I know my ancestry, maybe a little Irish, maybe a little German, maybe a little English, but I don't really know what that means. I've only been able to identify as white, as if that's just something, you know, as if that really is a true culture because that was essentially a race. So even just realizing just how much we have done or taken away from folks in the name of creating a racial hierarchy to oppress and to ensure, um, and to, and to ensure white superiority and power. And for what? What, what, what are we really getting from this? So when we really break it down and help people understand both culturally and systemically what is at stake because of the system that, that we were all born into, I think it will help all of us be able to say, okay, it's not, it's not a me problem. It's not a you problem. It's a systemic problem. But together, even though we didn't create the system, we have the power to change the system for the better and for the generations to come. Hmm. So what somebody picks up your book, what do you want them to get out of it? Because as you're talking, like, do you want me to learn? Do you want me to spark conversation? (laughs) Do you want me to change? Do you want all of the above? What are you hoping that people get from it? Well, first and foremost, uh, my book is is geared towards beginning your journey with healing well, first, understanding what white supremacy culture is and then healing from the harm that it has caused you as a person. And mm. that's 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 something that is has not been on the market until now, as far as just books are concerned. We have a lot of books about white supremacy, which we should. And I hope we have many more because this is not something that one person can write all of about. And yeah. boom, we've covered all of white supremacy and we're done. But specifically with my book, I want you to be able to understand how white supremacy culture has impacted the way that you see yourself in a way that you may not have realized because it has been normalized in our society. And it's that word normal. We've normalized certain things, so we just accept them. We accept them as standard. We accept them as fact. It can be anything from perfectionism to professionalism to, to the way that we see other people to the way, and, and of course, the way we see ourselves. We have just decided, well, it is what it is. We have normalized it and not really questioned and wondered, where does this come from? You know, in everything from your, from it, it, it's, it's about what everyone's going to identify with it differently as well. Even though I cover multiple areas of society, there's going to be parts that really hit you and there are going to be parts that you may not identify with as much because we're all different people. But first and foremost, the first two thirds or even three fourths of my book is about helping you see where are the roots of white supremacy in these different areas of society that have impacted us between some of the things that we've gone through as individuals, our own traumas and, the, and connecting some of those traumas to white supremacy, connecting the way that we were raised, things that our parents, the way the decisions they may have made, the decisions their parents may have made, tracing our family history and our roots, understanding those roots in white supremacy, understanding our school systems roots in white supremacy, our, our um, corporate roots in, in white supremacy, our economic roots in white supremacy, and understanding how that impacts us as people 
and, and, and beginning to break free from some of the ways and some of the negative things we've believed about ourselves that we didn't realize were connected to white supremacy. So a lot of it's going to begin a little bit of a healing journey for you, which, um, which I love that for us. It's, it's hard work, but it's good work. And there's journal mm. prompts and everything in there to help guide you through that, to be, to help you be able to look in the mirror and no longer believe certain things about yourself that you have believed for so long that you didn't even realize were connected to white supremacy culture. From there, I do begin giving you some starting points for imagining a society that no longer adheres to the standard of white supremacy. But it doesn't mean that we go knocking down the doors of society tomorrow. That's what it looks like. It just looks like changing the way that we approach things within our circles, within our spheres of influence, within our churches, our small groups, our, our households. How are we parenting our children? How are we telling them how they're worthy? Are we, are we attaching their worth to their grades? You know, just, just something simple. Right. Mm-hmm. Something simple that we have normalized in society. You you get good grades, you get a prize. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm proud of you when you get good grades and I speak badly of you when you don't, which teaches our children. I'm bad if I not smart or or I must not be smart because I didn't get good grades. Not even that I'm not smart. No, I just I didn't get a good grade. So I'm not smart. Therefore, I'm bad. Therefore, I'm not worthy. Therefore, I'm stupid. And it just piles up. And as parents, oh, we're just we're just <laughs> thinking. That will, you will identify with the school chapter then. We're thinking, we're just teaching our children how to be good students, not knowing there are roots in standardized testing and grades and grade point averages in white supremacy because a lot of those things were created to ensure that there was a separation between white students and black students and intellect. And the way that we test our children more often than not is rooted in Eurocentricism. So we're asking questions and we're phrasing things and we're teaching content and we're completely ignoring other cultures and other ways of thinking and being and existing as humans when we're teaching our students. And we're wondering why some students don't understand and why they can't measure up or we're teaching all students as if they come from a rich background when they don't. So and then we shun them for getting a bad grade. You see what I'm saying here? So how are we parenting in our households? with our children and and helping them understand that your grade has nothing to do with your intellect and that there are oh. there are systems around you that are that are that that you can't control that are essentially you know setting you up for failure so to speak and how do you work around them how do you see yourself as good and valuable while living within a society that is kind of built so that you don't yeah. That's that's what I'm talking about. So it's not necessarily that we, you know, kick down the doors of the school board tomorrow. We kick down the doors of the Capitol buildings or whatever. No, let's not do that. We do not want a repeat of that. What we do want is people that take this book and say, you know what? Now in my relationships with my friends, now with my parents, with my children, now with my workplace, I can begin telling people they can prioritize rest. How amazing is that? Yeah. Mm. You know, because they're not less of a human being. You know, how I'm going to begin showing up with with no makeup on my face and a face full of acne and and love myself and think that I am beautiful regardless, because I'm no longer falling for this lie that I have to have this picture perfect skin and this picture perfect body. And there's so many different things that this ties into. So it's it is a broad question, but everyone's going to take something different from it. But they're going to be charged to just begin making those little changes that I believe will have a ripple effect because people are going to look at you and say, something different about you. You seem you seem lighter. You seem freer. Tell me about that. And you can be like, you know what? I learned that I no longer have to see myself a certain way because society told me I had to. 
And I began just making some changes in the way that I live my life. Ooh, yeah. tell me more. And that's how that ripple effect can begin to to shape our society and culture. I, I'm I'm hopeful at least. <laughs> I can't believe we've been talking for an hour. I'm so sorry if you had other things to do. <laughs> oh, you know, my children, they they get iPad time anytime Mama has a podcast episode. Oh, and I told like, them, I was like, do more of those things, Mom. Do more of those things. Do, do that more. Podcast. Do that more. I told them to eat their lunch. I said, now make sure you eat a good lunch before you have the iPads. I expect them to eat for like 10 more minutes and get the iPads and go upstairs. And I'm watching them on the camera. As soon as I came downstairs, they put them lunch away and got the iPads. <laughs> I'm like, y'all didn't eat. I'm about to go upstairs. Like, y'all did not eat. Uh-uh. Come on back. <laughs> they were too happy. But I'm not hungry, mom. <laughs> yeah, well, right? Okay. So here and we go. Oh, minutes are going to be, I want a snack. Yeah, I'm so <laughs> Right? All the time. It's like, did I not just feed you? Like, here's your leftover lunch that, that you did not I eat. Wanted, mom. <laughs> that part. I don't want the leftover lunch. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to make you more food. Mm. See, that was triggering for me right there. Um, <laughs> okay, you talk about normalization and about asking the questions. And mm -hmm. it's important to ask the questions, not just of society, but also of ourselves. And so I'm going to ask you our second skill testing question about a Ooh. why me moment that you've had in your life where you've asked yourself that question about why me? Why am I doing this? Why am I? What God, why did you put me in this place? My adoption. That's the one for me. That's the one that'll pretty much make me emotional anytime I think about it. No, no matter what, if no, just no, if, ands, or buts, no matter how much I've reckoned or thought I've made peace with it. Uh, adoption is hard. Adoption hurts. And when I think about my story and, and the people that I was, that I was birthed from, for lack of better words, um, it really, really, really hurts. And I always ask, like, why? Why me? Why did, why was I placed in the womb of this woman? You know, mm. why did, why did this have to be the way that I entered the world? Why did I have to be neglected for almost three years before I, um, before I was brought to, to live in Minnesota? And, and there's some, there's some, you know, other childhood things that I went through as well that kind of added to a lot of that pain that I already felt like, okay, so then why, why was I, loved by somebody who, you know, didn't always know how to show that love very well after I was neglected and after I had gone through these things. But more specifically, it's just, it's, it's that adoption. Like, it's just the fact that like, I, I would just love to ask God, like, just tell me why <laughs> not to, not to yeah. sound like, uh, is the Backstreet Boys, <laughs> not to sound like them, but <laughs> seriously, tell me why that is my origin story. Because it just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I hate it for me. I hate it for my biological parents. I hate it all around. I will, I'm, I have a, a, a gratitude to have been raised by two amazing parents, but I will never, ever, ever love being adopted ever. Hmm. Does it make you want to or not want to adopt? No, I do not want to adopt. Mm -mm. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I know how painful it is and I, I understand children need to be adopted and I love that for the parents that, that choose that that's their path. But as, and as an adoptee, part of my healing is starting a biological family of my own and having my children that, that I can finally say I'm related to somebody biologically. I can finally look at somebody and see myself. It's really painful to be in a family and look at everyone around you and see everyone have the same physical characteristics but you. 
it's painful. No matter how much they love you, it still hurts. You still feel like you don't belong. Um, it, it, there's, there's a lot there. So for me, I, 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 I don't have any desires to adopt because I just, I, I just, for my own healing, I, I need biological connection that I, that I never received as a child. Yeah. Some of the hardest things that I've heard from friends of mine who've been adopted is they'll see pictures and somebody will look, oh my gosh, you have your mom's eyes. And they're like, no, no, I, no, yeah. I do not. No, I don't. That's, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've gotten uh, that too, that I look like my mom. Yeah. My mom and I just look at each other like, just because we're two face. black women, we don't yes. really look alike. Right? Not all Come black on people now. look the same. We don't look the same. We have absolutely no characteristics that are the same. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we'll All Be Free, which is available now. CarolineJSumlin.com, at CarolineJSumlin on the socials. Still going to try to convince you that you need a food shirt. But uh, other than that, I appreciate you so much for taking some time, for sharing your heart, and uh, for bringing some uh, eye-opening topics to uh, the Why Me Project podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I mentioned and we're going to learn, and you know, I think we probably could have talked for another hour or two or five, oh, and yeah. it was just incredible. Yeah, I so appreciated Caroline's openness, uh, sharing what she's learned with us, and we can learn so much more in her book. We'll all be free, and so you can check that out and really dive into finding your own identity in Christ, regardless of race. No, it's good. Speaking of checking it out, check us out. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Oh, no, Stitcher's almost done. It is. So, you can't do it anymore soon enough. So Yeah, let's, um, let's dictionate that one. Uh, but also find us uh, things like Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook, YouTube. Threads. And, uh, what is that? Oh, that's, I'm very confused. I've yeah, not posted yet, but we're on Threads. And YouTube. Check us yeah. out on Woo-hoo. YouTube. <laughs> All right. And uh, facestrongtoday.com. Yeah.